Good morning. The scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 3, 1 through 21. If you want to turn there in your Bible, you can follow along. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. What's on your prayer list? Like if you did a week-long, month-long, year-long prayer inventory, what are the things that are consistently on your list? And, and, and I'm not talking about people, so I'm not asking who is on your prayer list, because I know you pray for your spouse, your kids, your future spouse, you know, various people. The question is, what is it that you're praying for them? What? A follow-up question, how did those things land on your list, right? Where did you learn to pray for those specific things? So, I'm sort of getting at the what, what is it that we pray for, and the why, why do we pray for those things? I think we'd probably agree, for most of us, we tend to pray in line with what's been modeled for us. So, I came to Saving Faith in Christ in the spring of 1995, my junior year of college, and I immediately at that point started attending church. I started reading my Bible on my own, and I started spending time with other believers. Now, I had prayed up to that point, sort of genie in a bottle kind of praying, Lord, 
help me with this. Lord, I, would you help me win this ball game? Lord, would you help me get a scholarship? Lord, you know, it was all about what can you give me, but, but, but I, I didn't know God, and I didn't understand prayer. And after coming to faith in Jesus, I started hanging out with Christians on my baseball team, and, and we would actually have Bible studies together when we were, when we were on road trips together. And this was the first time I had actually heard people praying out loud, other than maybe the Thanksgiving Day, rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub sort of, sort of praying. But, but this was different. These guys influenced how I prayed. God seemed so real to them. He was very personal to them. And there were specific things they prayed for that I started to pray for. And I trust we've all had that kind of experience when we think of prayer. And of course, over time, right, other things begin to shape our prayers. Over time, as you're in the Word of God, you're reading the Bible, and you see the things that are important to God, and those become important to you, and so those end up on your, on your prayer list. I trust when, when, we, when we're in a healthy church that actually prays. You hear a pastoral prayer like what Andrew just prayed, and maybe there's things there where we learn more about praying. And, and maybe at some point, if you want to grow in prayer, you buy a couple of books. I mean, one book that I would recommend to anyone and everyone who wants to grow in prayer is the little, the little Puritan prayer book called The Valley of Vision. I love this little book because it's just a list of prayers, right? It's not a how-to, follow these seven steps and turn the crank and God will give you what you want. It's, it's, it's godly men of old who lived, ate, slept Scripture so that when they prayed, Scripture came out, right? It's very, very helpful. And even better than that, as good as that is, if we want to grow in praying, is what we get to cover this morning. Because today we come to another one of Paul's prayers. And, 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 and these biblical prayers are so helpful because, well, quite frankly, they're inspired by God. Right? They wouldn't be in our Bible if they weren't. And so, in studying a prayer like this, we get to see things that are obviously important for us to be praying for. Well, they're not the only thing that we have to be praying for, but, but they're obviously important, right, as they've been preserved for us in Holy Scripture. So, so this is a great passage to dig into, and we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, and hopefully you got a gathering guide on your way in, and in the gathering guide you should see the outline that I have, and you'll see that I broke this section down into three headings. First, we'll look at Paul's grounds for prayer, and then we're going to look at his prayer petitions. There's only two, but boy, they're weighty, and, and finally, we're going to focus on confidence we have in prayer and our ultimate purpose in prayer. So, we'll start with the grounds. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to begin by rereading verses 14 through the very first part of verse 16. Ephesians chapter 3. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, and we'll stop there for now, Paul begins his prayer saying, 
for this reason, which should cause us to ask for what reason? What's, what's he talking about? But, but this is interesting, right? Because last sermon in Ephesians, I pointed out that he actually started this prayer all the way back in verse 1, where you see another for this reason. Uh, you might recall when we covered that, I said it's as though he starts to pray and then thinks, oh, I got one more thing that I need to cover before I get into this prayer. And so he speaks a little bit more about his ministry to the Gentiles. And, and, and I point that out because the for this reason in verse 14 is equivalent to the for this reason in verse 1. And so he's saying what's led him to pray the way he does here is what God has done for us in Christ as spelled out in Ephesians chapter 2. And in fact, given some of the connections with this prayer and the themes of chapter 1, most commentators think the for this reason is really pointing back to all of Ephesians up to this point. And, and, and in fact, this prayer becomes a pivot point in the letter as this prayer serves as a transition in this letter, moving us from the theological section of Ephesians, chapters 1 through 3 are all about who God is and what He's done, and it's going to lead us to transition into the application section, how now we live in light of who God is. And so, let's just ponder a few things that Paul said thus far that really serve as the grounds to Christian praying. First, notice think back on the reality that God is the God who has chosen us in Christ from before the foundation of the world. I mean, just get your head around that. If you're in Christ, if you're here this morning and you're trusting in Christ, it is because He, in His grace, chose you before the foundation of the world. Amazing. What's more, in His amazing love, He predestined you, if you're in Christ. He predestined you to adoption into His family with all of the stunning benefits that come with that. I mean, come on, you think He's for you? You better believe it. Once we were dead in our trespasses and sin, we were slaves, all of us, to the world, the devil, and the flesh. And God broke those chains by making us alive together with Christ. You know, as Gentiles, which I trust probably all of us are, most anyway, we were separated from the Jewish Messiah. We were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were strangers to all of the covenants of promise. We had no hope because we were without God in the world. We were as far away as you could possibly be, but God, by means of Jesus' death on the cross brought us near, so near that He brought us into His own family, whereby on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Himself as the cornerstone, we are now being built up into the temple of God, the unique place God meets with His people. Little wonder then, Paul says, for this reason I pray. Yeah, because of who God is and what He's already done, I pray. Because of this, I have confidence to pray. Paul's saying, because of this, I pray these specific things for you, for all the saints. Closely related, we see the second ground in verse 14. He says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family 
and heaven and on earth is named. And this every family in heaven and on earth is named is a little bit challenging to translate from the original, but I think it's probably best to take as saying God is the heavenly Father of all of His people, whether still alive on earth or already in heaven. Now, regardless of how you take that phrase, the important part here as we think about this prayer is God as Father. You know, if you study the Old Testament, the fatherhood of God is not a common theme. It was Jesus who taught us that we could pray this way. It's because of Jesus' work on the cross and all He accomplished through His work on the cross that we, sinners, rebels, once enemies, are now, as we just talked about, adopted sons and daughters of God. And, and, and now we can come to Him as, as, as dad, as, as father. And as Jesus taught us in the Gospels, we know that a good father loves to give good gifts to his children. And this is certainly true of our heavenly father. I mean, what a great way to draw us into pray, right? Finally, the third ground to this prayer, like the previous two, is to build our confidence in prayer. Here Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of His glory, He might grant you. So notice, he's about to pray that we'd be strengthened, and the prayer is grounded on the riches of His glory. I should point out that Paul has done something like this before in Philippians 4.19 when he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, in formulating his prayer like this, Paul is showing his confidence that God is able to meet our needs. God is able to answer prayers. We don't pray to some distant deity who is poor and needy. We pray to our Heavenly Father, who is rich in glory. Notice how he's setting this up, right? This, this should lead us to want to go into the prayer closet, want to pray. These three initial grounds should give us great confidence that God is our amazing, loving, heavenly Father who wants His children to come to Him, and He is able to accomplish good things for His people, which now leads to the two requests that we find in this prayer, and they're, they're, they're intimately related. Uh, the first request could be summarized as a prayer for power. Look back at the text, starting in the end or the second part of verse 16. Says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Here Paul prays for power for Christians. And you 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 just can't miss the specifics here. They're, they're very important. They're important because naturally we love the idea of power. But, but all too often, we gravitate toward an ungodly version of power. And you clearly see this in the world around us, right, where we see a corruption of, pow of power all over the place. We see this insatiable desire to have power so that we can be in control, a, a me-centered power. Folks, even in the church, Christians crave power all too often for all the wrong reasons. 
I trust we've all probably heard Christians speak of the power of God that's at work in their lives that sounds all too close to a look at me, right? There's this desire for spiritual power so that others will look and say, whoa, boy, he, she is a really strong Christian, right? Boy, he lives such a victorious life. Or perhaps we want power to have a thriving ministry, whatever that means to you. But again, it would often be tied to what others think of you. Here, don't miss that there's a significant reversal of what's normal to the fallen nature. The natural man craves power so we can be in control. Paul is praying for power so that we're not in control, but that we're controlled by God. Notice in this text, Paul's praying that God may grant you to be strengthened with power in your inner being by means of the Holy Spirit. And those two qualifying phrases are very important. The power Paul is praying for is power that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, gives us. And specifically, it's, it's a power the Holy Spirit works within our inner being, or more literally, what Paul calls the inner man. 2 Corinthians 4.16 helps us understand this idea of being strengthened in the inner man. He says, we don't lose heart, though our outer man is wasting away. So the outer man is the body that we know is wasting away. Our outer man's wasting away. Our inner man is being renewed day by day. Listen, anyone over 40, somewhere in there, will testify to the outer man starting to waste away, right? Whether it's your hair turning gray or falling out or looking in the mirror and seeing wrinkles that you're like, oh, those weren't there a few years ago. Or aching joints, right? And scratch your back. It's like, oh, I just pulled a muscle. What in the world? This is ridiculous. Body's letting me down. Or far more serious, right? Sicknesses, diseases. The fact is, as we live in a fallen world, our, our bodies, our outer man, it's not going to last. They are wasting away, as it were. But, but, but there's something of the inner man that for the Christian should actually be getting stronger even as the outer man is getting weaker. I saw this with my dad, who didn't come to saving faith until he was 54. And before coming to faith, there were many ways in which you would have said, my dad was very strong. He's a very vibrant man, high-capacity guy. And after coming to faith, while his outer man was decaying, his inner man was being strengthened so that in those last few years especially, there was a side to him, a strength to him, a sweetness to him that I never saw when he was younger, back when he was far more physically vibrant. Which leads to the next thing we see here in the text. And it is that this power that's given us by the Holy Spirit is given to make us more like Jesus. Look back at verse 17. I want you to notice that's a purpose statement, so that. Once again, we see Paul's Trinitarian emphasis. I've been pointing this out throughout Ephesians. Trinity's all over this book. He's praying to God the Father that God the Holy Spirit would strengthen you with power in your inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, you might be inclined to say, hold on, 
why is he praying for something that's already happened? Right? He's clearly writing to Christians. That, that, that much has been clear from the get-go. Every single Christian already, by nature of their faith in Christ, already has Christ dwelling within by means of the Spirit, right? That's part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. So why does he pray like this? Well, this is one of many times where we do remember that, you know, the Bible was originally written in languages. Most of the Old Testament's in Hebrew, most of the New Testament's in Greek, and there are some times where various words and, 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 and what's there are a little bit hard to bring over, and I think this is one of those places. The, 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 the verb here that Paul's using is a very strong verb. It, it has the meaning of, of, of settling down, settling into one's permanent dwelling, not, not sort of sojourning here for a little bit and, and off you go. Uh, Don Carson in his excellent little book, Praying with Paul, used an analogy here that I found helpful. He, he talked about when a young couple moves into a starter home. Right? Eh, home might not be all that they would hope and dream, but it's what they could afford at the time. And so they, they move in, and, you know, maybe it's got old, ugly wallpaper. Uh, some of the rooms are painted in colors. They would have never painted them. And my goodness gracious, that kitchen that was designed in the 70s is just, ugh, you know. But it's what they could afford, and they're thankful to have it. And yet over time, they start to do some things around the house. Maybe the first thing that they can afford is some, you know, some fresh paint. Rip off that ugly wallpaper and put a color on the wall that they actually like. And over time, there's more things that are done. And, 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 you know, as time goes by, maybe they redo the kitchen, some granite countertops and some cupboards that they rather enjoy. And, you know, they both like gardening, so they put a big garden in the backyard and sort of the finish things off as they have a third child. They do a little addition so that over time, that dwelling really represents who they are far more than it did when they first moved in. And this really is the emphasis of Paul's prayer here, just as when someone lives in a house long enough that their presence there characterizes that house, as Jesus dwells in us, His presence should characterize that house, that abode, right, as, as the inner man, so that we begin to resemble Christ more and more. And let's be clear, when He first comes to dwell in us, that house is a mess, the inner man is all sorts of messed up, which is why Paul's praying for power, that we may be strengthened within the inner man, because it takes work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The Holy Spirit has to be at work, even at the level of our will, causing the kind of growth Paul is praying for. So this is a prayer for growth. It's a prayer that we would grow in Christ's likeness, and thus it's a prayer for the genuine internal work of God. Now listen close. That means this is not a prayer that we or our spouse or our children, whoever's on your prayer list, it's not a prayer that we might clean up the outside. Paul's not teaching us to pray that we would conform externally to the norms of the church right, that you're around the church enough that they're not going to embarrass you or, or, you know, that you know what to do and know what to say, but inside is still very filthy so that when no one's looking, you actually act like you reject Christ. I think Jesus had a few things to say about that, and they usually started with woe to you, 
That's not what we're praying for. No, this, this is a prayer for inside out kind of growth. So that even though the outer man is wasting away, the inner man is being renewed by the Holy Spirit so that our thoughts, we live out of the overflow of this, don't we? And our belief system and our desires, they're changed as they're being brought into conformity to Christ, and thus our actions begin to look more and more like Jesus with each and every passing day, month, and year. So that's the first request. Pray that the Spirit will empower other believers to be more like Jesus. And I beg you, church, would you please pray that for me? I'm just asking, would you? Put me on your prayer list and pray this prayer for me, would you? And would you put that prayer request for all of the elders? Would you consider getting our directory as it's being updated now? and pray this prayer request for every single member of our church, would you, please? Let's pray that the Spirit would empower one another to be more like Jesus. Pray that the Holy Spirit would empower the inner man so that we'll grow to look more and more like Christ. We need that kind of power. Second request is intimately related. Look back at the text starting towards the end of verse 17. He says, that you, this is another request, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength, so more strength, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, what's going on here? Well, the first question that we need to answer is, what's the deal with verse 18, and how is it related to what's before and what's after? And the reason I say it like that, that we need to answer that question, is because if you study carefully in some of your more literal translations like the ESV or the NASB, you you see that there's no direct object for these linear measurements. What is the breadth and length and height and depth of what? What's he talking about? And while there's been plenty of ink spilled on all sorts of interpretations, some of them sort of far out there, I I actually think it's pretty straightforward. Notice that he begins with the fact that they're already rooted and grounded in love, and then that the prayer lands on knowing the love of Christ. So these linear measurements are sandwiched between love. And thus, I, along with many other commentators, take this to be a prayer that we would come to fully grasp Christ's love for us. He starts off by saying, since you are already, as a Christian, since you're already rooted and grounded in love, and here he's, he's mixing metaphors between gardening and building, right? As, as, as a Christian, you're already rooted. If you're in Christ, your roots, according to this metaphor, are going down into, they're connected to, they're being nourished by the love of God. What's more, he's used as a building metaphor. And and here, the very foundation that we're being built up on is, again, the love of God. And so, with that reality, he prays for more power, and this time that we would be empowered, implied source is the same, still empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so, here the prayer is that we'd be empowered by the Holy Spirit 
so that we would really comprehend, along with all the saints, don't miss that point, this is something we pray for everyone, that we would really comprehend what is the breadth, what is the length, what is the height, what is the depth of the love of Christ that surpassing knowledge. Now, be clear. This is not a prayer that we love Jesus more, though that in and of itself would be a very good prayer request. But that's not what Paul's praying for here. He's praying that we would understand, that we would comprehend, that we would be gripped by Christ's love for us. And he uses both metaphor and paradox to drive home why we need the empowering of the Holy Spirit here. I mean, how do you measure the love of Christ? Breath? What do you say? He loves me as far as the east is from the west. That's good biblical language. That, that, that could work. How about height? How do you, what do we say about the love of Christ with height? How, how, do you, how do you measure that? Do you go to the old children's book? He, he loves me to the moon and back. Maybe. Depth? Couldn't come up with anything there. Thought of an old country song, my love is deeper than the holler. I mean, maybe he loves me deeper than the holler. If you don't like country, that's just let that go. Let it slide. How about length, right? We're in Texas. Maybe to Canada and back? I mean, that's pretty far. Surely it's more. Surely we can do better. Which is why metaphor leads to paradox. And that he's praying. Look at the text. He's praying that we would come to comprehend that which is limitless. That which he says surpasses knowledge. That which is mind-blowing, right? That which we should grow in our understanding of each and every day, and yet we will take our last breath, having never plumbed the full depth of this. And I want you to notice two vital implications. First, and this should be an encouragement to you, it was to me. First, Paul's praying for this, because he knows we don't already comprehend Christ's love to the degree that we should want to, right? I mean, think about it. Do you really understand the breadth, length, height, and depth of Christ's love for you? Do you understand it? I, I don't. Have you plumbed the depths of that? I trust not. And that's why this prayer is here. So, how do we grow here? Well, I think for one thing, in accordance with this text, I trust we should be asking God to empower us through His Spirit to grow in really comprehending Christ's love for us. I mean, doesn't James 4, 2 tell us sometimes we have not because we have asked not? That's been a conviction of mine wrestling with this text all week. I've got to pray for this for myself, and I need to pray it for you. you know, what's more, if we want to grow here, we can rest assured that we absolutely have got to be in the Word. If Scripture is where God has revealed Himself to us, that's, it's there that we see His character. It's there that we learn of His love. And, and we know that the Holy Spirit works through Holy Scripture. Just read John 14, 15, and 16. Then we better be pouring over Scripture if we want to grow here. But as soon as I say that, I do want you to understand this. This is not simply an academic exercise. And I say that knowing that I am preaching as an academically-minded pastor to what I believe is an academically-minded church. But this comprehension of the love of Christ that Paul's praying for 
goes beyond knowing Jesus academically. It goes beyond being able to quote all of the verses. It goes beyond being able to diagram all the sentences and parse the verbs. And in point of fact, you could memorize the entire New Testament. You could get really good at arguing with people with precision on your view of Christology and not grow one bit in your comprehension of the love of Christ that he's talking about here. And that's because there is indeed an experiential element to this. And that can scare some people in Reformed traditions to talk about, but it's true. Throughout the Scriptures, the idea of knowing God, for example, is covenantal language where God knows us and we know Him very personally. And that goes beyond just knowing facts about God. For we know the demons know all the facts about God, but they do not know God covenantally. You see the experiential side of the relationship in, say, a text like John 7, 17. The Jews are trying to figure out, well, why do you think we should trust what you have to say? And Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, then he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Did you, did you hear that? There's a degree to which you can't even know if this is true unless you're committed to it, unless, unless your will is to do what's here. Then, then there's a degree to which I'm never going to fully grasp all of this, right? There, there's a part to our faith that is so intertwined with how we obey. We listen, we hear, we obey, we grow, we know God more, and all of that. And I would argue that this comprehension of the love of Christ that Paul's talking about is along the very same lines. Think about it. When we come to Christ at conversion, we, when we are converted, we have a pretty good sense of the love of Christ, because just consider, consider God's drawing process to get us there, right? Through God's drawing process, sort of normal things that typically happen in somebody's life when they come to faith, they come to understand who God is. They come to some understanding. They might not have all the theological jargon, but they come to understand He's holy, He's different, and He cannot and He will not tolerate sin, and oh yeah, I am a sinner. I have rebelled against God. And you come to understand, oh yeah, I actually deserve God's judgment. I deserve that. And then, 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 you come to taste and see for the first time. You, you get a true glimpse of the love of Christ in a most profound way because now you believe that God so loved the world that He dispatched His own Son to come rescue you. It's personal. You come to understand Jesus loved you enough to die on the cross, and you embrace that, and you are saved. And let me just say, if you're here this morning, and you're not in Christ, this is here for you, to know this love. But you've got to repent and believe in Christ, even now. For those who have believed, there's that experience of the love of God, right? That's why you'll often hear new converts saying, I'm overwhelmed, or some other language like that. And it is both academic. I would never deny the cognitive side to the Christian faith. I mean, you obviously have to understand some basic truths, right? But there's also real experience to this. And what's more, this experience grows as we know, don't we, that conversion is not conversion unto perfection. And so now daily, I'm confronted still with who God is, and who I am, the old man, and I'm confronted in a glorious way of the love of Christ. And, and, and I experience the reality that, that, whoa, 
he doesn't cast me out like I would probably want to do to myself. He doesn't look at me with sort of the impatient disdain that I'm prone to look at myself or others who don't live up to my standards. And as I pray through that, and as I read His Word, and as I do what we're doing here, and I have His Word preached, and, and, and as I do what we got to do on Thursday night, some of the guys, and, and meet together with other brothers or other sisters in Christ, this, this, this comprehension of Christ's love becomes more real, becomes more clear. I experience it more and more, which leads to the second implication that we need to see here, and it's this. Comprehending the love of Christ is intimately connected to Christian maturity. I get that from Paul's purpose or result statement. He, he prayed that we would be empowered to comprehend the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge with the purpose, for the purpose that, or with the guaranteed result that we might be filled with the fullness of God. And that filled with the fullness of God, study that kind of language in Paul, that's a Pauline way of saying that you might grow in maturity in Christ, that you would grow in being spiritually mature, that you would grow in being all that Christ has called you to be. In chapter 4, you find a similar expression. They're clearly referring to Christian maturity. Look, starting in verse 11 there in chapter 4, he says, He gave the apostles and the prophets, the evangelists and the shepherd teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. See, this is all about Christian maturity. This is all about Christ being formed in you. As we better understand the love of Christ, it changes us, right? It changes what we want because we want to honor Him. And there's a very important implication here. And that is, you cannot be mature in Christ. You can't without really knowing, comprehending, grasping, laying hold of Christ's love for you. Well, you might grow in theological knowledge read a lot of books. There's a lot of unbelieving seminary professors out there. You might grow in your understanding of some really cool connections in the Bible, but we will not grow in the maturity that Paul is praying for and teaching us to pray for without growing in our understanding of Christ's amazing love for us, which is why we must pray for this. And as we proceed on to the end of this chapter, we see that we can pray with great confidence and for a great purpose. Look at verses 20 through 21. Wonderful benediction that we often close with, but very clearly connected to this prayer. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How about that? 
for a confidence booster in your prayers. Yes, understanding the love of Christ and all there is for us is something that we'll never completely plumb the depths of, but we can most assuredly grow here as we are praying to our loving Heavenly Father who is able to do far more than we could ever ask or think. Have you ever had this experience? I've had it multiple times where you needed something really badly, and you ask somebody you think could help you, and they say something along the lines of, ah, well, I might be able to pull that off, but don't get your hopes up. Like, great, not helpful. Which is why I love this so much, right? You want to grow in your understanding of Christ's love for you, which is intimately connected to your growth in maturity? Pray, knowing God can do far more than all we could ever ask or even imagine. And don't miss it at the end of the day. This all reverberates to God's own glory. When we think about prayer, our ultimate purpose is for God to be glorified. Yes, I want to see myself or whoever I'm praying for grow, for example, in their comprehension of the love of Christ so that I or they would grow in maturity. I want that. But church, let's be clear, that is a secondary goal. That's a means to an end. The ultimate end, the end for which God created the world, is His own glory. And the ultimate goal of our prayer, as you see in this benediction, is that God would be glorified. As we pray, as, as, as we as a church more and more start to comprehend the love of Christ for us, and it changes us from the inside out, and we start living in accordance, don't you think that redounds to His glory? Don't you think He's honored in that? Let's pray to that end. Let's pray, church. I love studying prayers like this because it brings me back to, oh yeah, these things are so critical. These things are so vital. I want to see God glorified in me. I want to see God glorified in us. May we pray for the Spirit's work in our lives to do just that. Let's pray together. Father, we do pray. Lord, we do pray with Paul that you might grant us to be strengthened with power through your Spirit and our inner being so that Christ may take up further and further residence in our hearts, changing us from the inside out. Lord, would you give us the strength, would you empower us by your Spirit to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love for us that we may be filled with the fullness of God, that we may grow in maturity, and that all of this, Lord, we pray, would be for your glory. We thank you. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.